AMU. The following podcast is brought to you by American Military University on behalf of In Public Safety. Welcome to the podcast In Public Safety Matters, brought to you by American Military University. I'm your host, Leishan Stelter. Today's show focuses on domestic violence. As many law enforcement officers are well aware, domestic violence incidents are one of the most common calls for service. Because of that reality, officers are trained and often well-experienced in responding to these calls, but they don't always have the full picture when it comes to what's needed in actually prosecuting these cases and bringing justice for domestic violence victims. My guest today is a law enforcement officer who has seen both sides. I'm joined today by Scott DeFore, who, as a police officer since 2004, has responded to many domestic violence calls. In his new role, he also has an inside legal perspective on this issue as an investigator in a domestic violence prosecutions unit for a district attorney's office in Colorado. Scott is also a graduate of American Public University with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and a master's degree in criminal justice. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I wanted to start our conversation by asking you to tell us a bit more about your background as a police officer and specifically what made you so interested in pursuing a career that focused specifically on domestic violence cases. Sure. Like you said, I've been a police officer since 2004. I started for the Phoenix Police Department in Arizona and just worked patrol down there before I moved up to Colorado. I actually didn't, when I started police work, have any interest in or specific interest in domestic violence. It kind of happened by accident. But after working for a municipal agency in Colorado for a while, I took a job as an investigator for the district attorney and was assigned to the domestic violence unit. Prior to that, I had no real in-depth experience in domestic violence investigations besides, like you said, responding as a patrol officer for several years and then just working general investigations. But once I got into the domestic violence unit, I found that it was work that was incredibly challenging and also incredibly meaningful for the types of victims that I was able to help. And can you tell us a little bit more about your role as an investigator in a domestic violence prosecutions unit? You represent the law enforcement side of it. How do you collaborate with prosecutors or what's your role as the liaison? Sure. My role as an investigator in the DV unit is, it's pretty broad, my responsibilities. I do a lot of case reviews for domestic violence arrests that come in from the local law enforcement agencies and uh, just triage them and find which ones may need us to reach out to victims immediately. Some victims are borderline not wanting to cooperate with law enforcement for a variety of reasons. So I try to identify those as best I can and make an effort to reach out to them and bring them in and let them know that we're on their side and we haven't abandoned them after the initial arrest is made of the offender. A lot of times also, I find new charges that are applicable after I've reviewed the first affidavit that comes in. And so in those cases, I'll file additional charges. Also with domestic violence cases, it seems that the, obviously it's not like 
investigating a robbery where a stranger robs another stranger. This is a case where in many instances, the victims and the offenders have very long histories. They have children together and they've built their lives around each other. And so they so often continue to reach out to each other, continue to talk in violation of court orders and things like that. So a lot of times those scenarios where the offenders continue to try to manipulate the victims after an investigation has been initiated, I'll conduct those investigations and file additional charges as necessary. So after an incident happens, the responding officer will obviously file some sort of report, whether there's an arrest or whatnot. And then that report comes into your office specifically. And then I just want to make sure I understand how the whole thing works. So then you'll review the report, basically follow up with the case to make sure that the information's there, the victim is on board with what needs to happen next in order to actually take it to court. Is that kind of the scenario? The responding agency almost like hands it over to your unit and you guys kind of take it from there? Somewhat, depending on the case and depending on the local agency as well. In the area that I represent, there are local law enforcement agencies that are very large and they have a fully staffed, completely functioning detective or investigations unit that needs no help whatsoever. And then there's other agencies that don't have detectives at all or have one and are completely overworked. So depending on where the case originates, my role after the initial arrest can change. But in general, you are correct. The first arrest is made. Oftentimes, if it's a felony or a very serious crime, a detective from the local agency stays involved and does the case filing. And then I'm just there for additional follow-up on my role in those cases is often very minimal. I think the best way to explain it would be that I think coming from a local agency, our focus, speaking from my own personal experience there, our focus was kind of offender-focused, finding the bad guy, arresting the bad guy, putting the bad guy in jail. And where I'm at now at the district attorney's office, it's very victim-focused. How can we reach out to the victim right now? How can we make sure the victim is safe right now and through the future? We do a lot of witness protection evaluations to make sure that the witness can be, we call it witness protection, even though it's uh, for witnesses or victims, and make sure that they're safe. Does that explain it a little better? Yes, I think just to have a clear picture of how you work with both agencies and then also with prosecutors, I think it's a great role that exists because, like you said, a lot of smaller agencies just don't have the manpower. They may not have the expertise to bring these cases to the full result that is really needed in order to protect some of these victims and prosecute the offenders. We'll be right back after this. The national security field needs skilled people capable of analyzing data and converting it into meaningful insights for national decision makers and private companies. American Military University offers bachelor's and master's degrees to equip intelligence community professionals with the knowledge they need. Learn from leaders in the intelligence community. Apply now at amuonline.com. Welcome back. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit here about... Some things that you've learned since being in this new role, 
and to being in the domestic violence prosecutions unit specifically, I'm sure there were some things that you learned after having been sort of an officer on the street kind of role where you were actually just responding to these cases and then seeing it from the legal perspective probably brought some insight in terms of what do officers need to know when they're helping to build these cases? Are there common mistakes or things that officers may overlook that are actually really important from the, the prosecution and, and legal perspective? Yeah, there certainly are. I think I can identify a handful of really common mistakes that I see repeatedly that we could do a better job of addressing in the field during the very initial investigation. Yeah. Can you outline just a couple of those that you've seen over your career? Yeah, definitely. I think number one is officers not uh, having the victim get some sort of medical evaluation. In Colorado, there's a strangulation law where they made a very specific statute that recognizes how dangerous strangulation is. And so the forensic nurse examiners that work at hospitals are trained medically to evaluate those victims. And I've seen multiple times where police officers insert their own personal opinion on a body camera footage or something like that, or even in their report where they call the victim's credibility into question because they don't see any visible injuries or something like that. And then thankfully, that victim is transported to the hospital and is allowed to be seen by a, a forensic nurse examiner who finds significant damage or risk of death from that assault. And I, I've seen that kind of mistake repeatedly. Seems like it would be very important to always make sure that a victim gets some kind of medical evaluation, medical care, even if it's not a visible, you know, someone being stabbed or punched. There could be a lot of wounds that aren't visible to the officer immediately. Right. And I was shocked to learn after talking with some of the forensic nurse examiners to learn that it's about 11 pounds of pressure needed on someone's neck to cut off the blood flow through their carotid artery. And it's like four pounds of pressure to cut off uh, blood flow through the jugular vein. And one nurse had told me that, you know, a handshake is 50 pounds of pressure and you don't bruise from shaking hands. So it's reasonable to not have any bruising or any kind of visible injury from a strangulation that is incredibly dangerous. So that's one thing. Officers should always make sure that they send victims to get a medical evaluation. What's another kind of common mistake or things that officers overlook when responding? Not recognizing stalking behavior for what it is. Stalking is a very serious and reliable predictor of future violence against victims. Yet we seem as officers to overlook these things because a lot of stalking behavior in itself viewed very specifically isn't illegal. Things like monitoring the victim's behavior, using some kind of coercive tactics like using technology to log into their spouses or significant others, social media, and tracking their actions and stuff like that. Anything that kind of shames or coerces or anytime they conduct surveillance, you know, always picking up the victim from work, not letting them go places. These are things that aren't 
necessarily by themselves illegal. And so we fail to recognize them or document them. But stalking is a long-term problem that can lead to very serious consequences for the victim. And I think we could do a better job of documenting those stalking behaviors and cues that we see, even if it's an incident where we're not making an arrest today, right? We're out on a call and we see these coercive behaviors, but nothing that we have today rises to the level of probable cause where we can arrest someone. Documenting that is so helpful in the future. For me, in the prosecutions unit, I can go back and review every single case and every single police report that's been made between this victim and this offender. And I'm able to put a bigger perspective together, you know, a 10,000 foot view of this situation when it comes across my desk. And I can build this stalking case based on multiple incidences of stalking behavior that maybe at the time wasn't illegal. That's another really good point and evidence, like just increasing evidence that this person is trying to, whether it's intimidate or harm an individual through, and I'm sure you see it all the time through things like, you know, it's not just sitting outside your house, it's through social media, it's online, it's, there's a lot of different ways now that people can stalk other people in a way that's really terrifying. So that's another good piece of advice that officers need to make sure that they are capturing evidence of stalking or other predatory behavior by offenders. Is there anything else that you commonly either see officers not doing or things you'd like them to do more? I think another thing that we could do better is by treating children that are involved in domestic violence incidents in households more as victims than bystanders. There's pretty good research on kids as young as 10 and 12 years old being able to elaborate intelligently on the coercive behavior that they see the offender doing. They can provide really valuable evidence. And obviously interviewing children is something that a lot of police officers aren't trained to do, but getting some kind of cursory interview with children or even just other people, other adults that live in a household where there's constant domestic violence is something I've seen repeatedly. And I realize that there's 10 more calls for service pending while you're inside dealing with this domestic violence. And it's the same house you've been to a hundred times. But if there's four other people in the house getting their statements immediately while on scene and maybe forwarding to detectives or investigatory staff the names and information of children who are present so they could maybe be forensically interviewed down the road would be incredibly helpful. And is that something your office kind of specializes or has people to help with uh, interviewing children? Because I know, like you said, that's a sensitive and doesn't always stand up in court depending on the age of the child and the situation. But do you offer investigators or detectives who specialize in interviewing children? Yes, we have investigators that are trained to do that. And then we also utilize a a specific facility that's um, specialized in that as well. Because as most parents know, kids see a lot more than you think they do and probably know a lot more. So that seems like they would be good. I don't know if witnesses is the right word, but they can offer some additional information that even the victim themselves is not cooperating or willing to to kind of talk about. So that's another really good piece of advice. 
I was wondering if we could shift now to the court perspective of this, the actual like legal undertaking. I know that you go to court fairly often for these cases. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepare for court and perhaps some advice for officers who are called to testify in these cases, things that you've learned through doing this repeatedly that could really help officers do their best, I guess, in court? I don't know that I have any kind of earth-shattering advice in that area, but for me, I have the perspective of these cases. A lot of times I have so much more information when we're going to trial than the officer who responded to the one call, you know, on Tuesday, March 5th, for example, or whatever. That's what they're going to testify to, whereas I might be testifying to um, a lot of prior incidences or inconsistent statements and things like that. So my preparation includes reviewing a ton of reports and things like that, just so I I have so many cases across my desk that it's important for me to remember the details of each specific one. So just report review is huge. I also feel, and this kind of goes to another mistake I see um, as well, is officers not having some kind of audio recording device or something like that where we can record the victim's statements initially and track how those might change as the case progresses. So I might have to review those things. As far as a patrol officer goes, I would say um, reviewing your report is incredibly important. If your department utilizes body cameras and you have access to that, review those things. Because there's a lot of times I know officers are frustrated by recanting victims, but there are a lot of situations in court where if we have proper documentation of the victim's statements and how they've changed and evolved throughout the court process, we can bring in during trial all these inconsistent statements or prior statements that were made, even if the victim isn't cooperating during the trial. So for example, when the incident first happens, an officer, it's really important for them to record or otherwise document very well the victim's initial statement because that's what is based on the actual experience that they just had. And like you said a little bit earlier, domestic violence cases are so, they're so intimately involved with the perpetrator that as time goes on, they may either think, you know, it's not worth doing this or they're going to hurt me. They're threatening to hurt me again. So it's not worth putting my children through that or whatnot. So they change their story. But basically, you're saying that if we have enough evidence of how they responded or their recounting of the incident initially, you can basically say, this is what happened initially. They've kind of changed through fear or whatnot later, but this is still what happened. We still have evidence of the severity of this incident initially or whatnot. Is that not a great way to no, to recount it, but that's you're exactly more right. or less what happens. Yeah, you're exactly right. If we can show some kind of inconsistent statements throughout the process, a lot of times those statements will be allowed to be admissible in court and we can use them and still prosecute the offender. And, and you're exactly right. A lot of times the victims in these cases choose not to keep going through it because of fear. Sometimes they choose it for other reasons. The ones that want to step out of the relationship that have managed to get out of the cycle of violence, a lot of times the court process drags on so long that it's something that they are just ready to move past and they don't even want to deal with it anymore. And so it's not even 
out of fear at that point. It's just more of like, I've moved on with my life. Why am I still being dragged through this court process? So for a variety of reasons, having all of those inconsistent statements or changes in their opinion is very valuable. And not to mention trauma victims have very distinct issues with memory. And so it's helpful too to have that documented along the way because we can call in experts in the cycle of violence and in domestic violence and have them testify about why there are inconsistent statements or why a victim didn't remember something the first night you asked them, but now remembers it. So it's helpful for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. I was hoping just to sort of get your take lastly on working with prosecutors. I know this is something that law enforcement officers, patrol officers and agencies sometimes have challenges just understanding what prosecutors need or how to work effectively with them. Now that you've seen both sides, do you have any insights on how to better communicate or collaborate with prosecutors in a way that everyone can contribute and get what they need, quote unquote, from that relationship? Or yeah, do you have some insight on how to communicate, work better with prosecutors themselves? Yeah, I would say the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me this question is how shocked I was when I came to the district attorney's office at how much work the attorneys have to do. I think that their job is a hundred times more difficult than the detectives or the police officer's job. And I mean that obviously more difficult in a different kind of way, but the number of cases that they have to know every single detail of is astounding. And the way that they are able to successfully handle so many cases is a really impressive feat. So my point by saying all that is have some patience. I remember being so frustrated sometimes by going to court when I was a patrol officer and stepping into the courtroom and having the prosecutor tell me, you know, what case are you here for? And I would tell them the name and they would say, oh, is that the case with this particular charge? And that never happened for like a trial, but some kind of hearing that leading up to trial or something. And I would always be frustrated, like, how do you not know what case this is until you work there and you realize that they have 87 open cases right now? So I'd say have patience and cut them some slack. Their job is incredibly difficult as far as the way to communicate with them. Everyone that I've worked with is open to communicating with officers, keeping in mind that they're also in court all the time, unlike us, and they can't talk on the phone or respond to emails because they're in the courtroom. But they all make it a priority to communicate with the officers and to make some kind of plan. So if you have questions, I would say just don't be hesitant to reach out to them and ask them, you know, what kind of questions are you going to be asking me, what is my role? What kind of evidence are you hoping to get admitted through me? And everyone I've ever worked with has been more than willing to help with that sort of question. And I think that your number one piece of advice, just to be patient, plays into this whole process. So it's not just be patient with them responding to you quickly or, you know, you really have to try to get them everything you think they're going to need. Ask them if there's anything else. What else are you looking for? Or how else can you kind of help, basically? But I think that's really good. If officers understood what prosecutors had to deal with, they would probably be also pretty astounded, just like you were, because it it is. It's a pretty overwhelming job. 
Anything else now that you're kind of in the district attorney's office and you're seeing these types of things? Any other realizations or kind of aha moments that you've had in the last couple years since you've been there? I think a big thing, and this kind of actually answers your last question as well, is remember that we as police officers work under a different standard of evidence standard of proof than the attorneys do. We need probable cause, which is a relatively low standard to make an arrest and charge someone. They're going to view that case under a whole different microscope, and they are going to put a way higher standard on whether or not that case should go forward, particularly as investigators. But I think it would do huge things for all cases, domestic violence or not, if patrol officers could try to view their investigations and the cases that they respond to, view them as what kind of evidence do I have? Do I just have probable cause or do I have this case beyond a reasonable doubt? What kind of doubt do we have here that might make me question the ability for the prosecutors to get a conviction in this case? If we raise our standards, the quality of investigations that get presented to the prosecutors and then the quality of prosecution that they can bring to the courtroom is just going to be increased dramatically. That's another really great point. Officers receive a lot of training, obviously, but there's so many things that they need to be trained on that affect response and officer safety and legal issues and things like that. But are there training programs that help officers become more aware of what you just outlined, the standards of evidence, things that prosecutors might know? Like, is there a training opportunity for officers to better understand those things? Or is that just gleaned through years of experience? Nothing makes you a better officer. Nothing makes you realize what you should have done better than getting made to look like a fool by a defense attorney when you're on a witness stand. That is definitely the best teacher. But yes, there are tons of training opportunities, at least where I work. The District Attorney's Council puts together a lot of different training for police officers and then a lot of public safety training companies or groups put together a lot of training. I've seen several different options throughout my years within forensic interviewing or learning about the cycle of violence legal standards and things like that. I've come across a lot of different formal trainings for that. It just seems that it would be a win-win for everyone if you better educate officers on what prosecutors need so that they're getting that information right off the bat without having to go back and figure it out after an incident or they just know instinctively what they need to get for the prosecuting attorney. So that's really, it's all really good information. Is there anything else that we didn't cover about your role working on domestic violent cases that you think other officers or others could benefit from knowing? I think that had I had this experience prior to being on patrol, I would have been, and this is easier said than done, but I would have been much more patient with victims and more understanding that breaking out of the cycle of violence for so many of these victims is the most difficult thing they'll ever do in their life when they're considering their children or their financial situation or their actual safety, their physical safety. This takes persistent effort on our part where we might get told over and over by the victims, I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm going to lie about what happened. 
our persistence and compassion goes a really long way. And eventually when they decide to break out of the cycle of violence, uh, letting them know like, we'll be here to support you and to help you through this process. That's something I would have focused on more as a, as a patrol officer now interacting with the victims um, so much as I do. Yeah, I think that's a really important kind of note to end on is that this is involving people who have been abused often for a long, long time. Like you said, they're trying to break out of this cycle and it's your whole life. Your whole world has been built around often this person and to try to start over is both terrifying. And then when you think about the violent aspect of it, that it's actually you're in danger or like you said, it's incredibly difficult. And uh, often women need a lot of support. And it's good to hear that law enforcement was there to at least provide that initial, we're going to get you out of this situation and then we'll send you with resources or other ways to try to break out of this. So it's really important work, and I just commend you for all the work that you do to help these victims and try to protect them from some of these perpetrators. So thank you, Scott, so much for joining me today. It's been really informative and eye-opening. Thank you very much for having me. I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us for this episode of In Public Safety Matters. I'm Leishan Stelter. Be well and stay safe. For the latest public safety news, visit inpublicsafety.com and sign up for our daily newsletter. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.